Hello everyone, how you doing? This is Coffee Chug and I'm here with the next edition of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. Guys, as we are wrapping up, soon to be another school year. It's hard to believe that we are finally here. We're in the home stretch, even though these days feel like they last for eons. It is hard to believe that we are approaching June and we are underway for our summer, which we know if you are an educator, that does not mean a summer off. That means one, recharging your battery, your mental health, your all those elements of your life that need to be recharged and kind of cleansed and, and ready to go for the next school year. You know you have curriculum writing and meetings and probably conferences and book studies and good Lord, who knows what else in terms of your initiatives. But I want to focus this episode, episode 95, on the topic of teacher experience. And the subtitle of teaching experience is, thank you, and I'm sorry. For anybody who is no longer in the classroom, or maybe has never been in the classroom, it is important that before we place any perception, or judgment, or opinion, or insight on how to operate a classroom, we need to be in the classroom. You see, I got to spend the last couple weeks helping teach a seventh grade STEM class, helping them understand how to use Lego EV3 Mindstorms kits that the school had purchased. And the experience was very eye-opening. I'm not that far removed from the classroom. I spent 14 years at a middle school. I'm now in my second year of serving 21 school districts in STEM and makerspace and computer science. And even in my role at the middle school, I spent the last four years as an instructional coach. And every day I had students in my space working on something, whether it was a full class or partial class or groups of kids. But none of that is the same as having your own quote-unquote quote own students now i know many of you might argue that and say they're all our students and we have to treat all students as if they're all part of our culturally collective being and yes i completely agree with that but there is also a bit of ownership for those kids that walk into your space your learning space 180 plus days every year you have ownership in building relationships you have ownership in helping them see who they are, who they can become, and oftentimes doing that with so many variables that no kid should really have to deal with. And so as I got to spend the last couple weeks working with 7th graders in May, I don't know that there's any better test of your teaching skills than that. And so I, I entered the space super jazzed and super excited because I got to teach something that I love and we use Lego EV3 Mindstorms and we did a sumo bot competition and we were working on coding and building engineering principles and friendly competition and, and kind of working through these things and so much of what I talked about in the last podcast on confidence came through, came through the light um, for me. All these things that I know, because here it is, here it is. And I know if you're an educator, you're you're right now going, duh, you're nodding your head going, this is what I deal with every day. Um, but I've said this comment, and I'm sure you have heard this in keynotes and presenters and quote unquote experts in education, I've, and I'm guilty of this, and here's what I've said. I used to be a teacher. I understand what you're going through. Now, there lies truth and misconception. 
the truth is, you know what? I have not forgotten what teachers go through. I haven't lost the struggle and the journey and the grind and the celebrations and the setbacks and the tears and the high fives that come with working with kids every single day. I haven't forgotten that. Some of my most powerful memories I have in my professional career and personal career are those of students, both successes and the kids I didn't quite reach. But it doesn't give me the right to say I understand because I'm not in the trenches right now. And spending the last couple of weeks working with kids, I got a taste of my own medicine. And that medicine has reminded me to no longer make that statement to teachers. If we are not teaching currently in the grind, in the classroom with 25, 30, 35 kids day in and day out, we don't have the luxury to say, I understand. What we have the luxury to say is, how can I help you? And there is, I think, a bridge that needs to be crossed with many of us who work in these jobs of supporting educators. Because it's one thing to understand, it's another thing to experience. And working with these kids, they were phenomenal. But they were seventh graders in the month of May who were ready for summer. And some of their behavior was high energized. Not every kid was on task. You know why? Because they're kids. Not because of poor teaching or a lack of trying or not having a hands-on activity. We had all that. We had a nice large space in a library. Kids had their own devices. We had hands-on learning with the robotics kit. We had an arena. We had voice and choice. We had design. We had support. We had several educators. And it still wasn't enough because they're kids. And we can't forget that we cannot expect kids to act like adults when we as adults can't even do the same thing. How many of us are checked out? And yet we're going to turn around and get angry because an adolescent being can't do what we're not capable of doing. But I digress. I am here today to tell you thank you. Thank you for what you do in the classroom every single day. And that I'm sorry if I've ever made a comment to you. I used to teach. I understand what you're going through. Because to be in that grind has really opened my eyes to many things. I loved it. I absolutely loved working with those kids. It made me miss teaching. It made me miss the opportunities you have to flip a switch in the brain and in the confidence and in the mindset of our youth. I'm really locked into this concept of confidence. Not just confidence with students, but confidence with educators and confidence with ourselves. And in this lesson, we had a group of girls who were amazing. And they were building this robot that I really thought was going to be top-notch. They didn't see it. And I tried to nudge them. I tried very hard not to do the building for them. I tried very hard not to give them the answer. And there's times in which, obviously, I crossed over that line. But I wanted them to work through this process. And they were building this robot. And they were literally just 
right there. You know that um, there's that comic, that graphic. And I'm gonna have to go back and find it. Where uh, quitting, you don't realize how how close you are to striking the diamonds. You know when you quit, and there's that guy like with the pickaxe, and he's just like a millimeter away from striking gold or the diamonds, whatever it is. And these girls were right there. So I turn my back. And I go to work with another group of kids, a group of boys who are getting very frustrated because their idea isn't working because we all know how hard it is to have an idea in our brain and then to bring it to the real world. And as I'm working with them, helping them kind of put out their fire, I go back to these girls at the end of the class and the robot's gone. And the girl's comment to me was, it broke, it fell apart, we can't compete. And my heart sunk because I know what happened is they intentionally destroyed the robot. And it's interesting. We talk about this word called failure, which is the bane of my existence um, for many reasons. And that's going to be a future podcast. And I kept thinking about the conditions of kids who don't have belief in themselves and even the ones that act extremely arrogant and maybe are buttheads in your classrooms and hallways. We are dealing with the social-emotional imbalance that's stronger than ever before. It's always been there. Trying to figure out life and navigate the pathways of life as a child is grueling. Watching my own children go through it now. Heck, sometimes I feel like I'm struggling with it now, and I'm, and I'm old, tall, and bald, and ugly, right? And I've got a good life, and I still struggle with that piece. But we have to think about creating the conditions at a very early age and allowing this culture to continue and not stop. In the last episode, I talked about how I think confidence starts to drop, especially in STEM, when standardized testing comes into play, because as much as we say we love kids to try and experiment and iterate and go through the design engineering process and inquiry and explore, we still are funneling kids to come up with a right answer. They have to come up with the right answer in ST math, have to come up with the right answer on the standardized tests, have to come up with the right answer on the formative and the summative assessments. And it's just a nonstop grueling grind of coming the right answer. While adults are saying, explore, try, keep going, keep working. It reminds me of a comic that I read this morning. Um, it was a Blondie comic. I love my comics. It's my 10 minutes of peaceful meditation practice. You don't know if it's meditation, but I call it that. And there's a three-cell panel, and I will link it in the show notes to this. And in the first panel, it's, um, you know, Mr. B laying on the recliner, and the kid says, I put down the wrong answer on the science test today, Mr. B. And uh, Blondie goes and turns to Elmo and says, we all learn from our mistakes, Elmo. And the student or the kid responds, yeah, but I get graded on mine. Let me say that last part again. Yeah, but I get graded on mine. Think about that. Think about our classroom practices. Think about what we do and how much what we say doesn't always relate to our actions. This is really important work that I think we need to think about. These same things hold true for us as professionals in the classroom. We think about how many times we're told that we are professionals and we know what we're doing and this and that and we trust you, we want you to explore and then you sit in an XPD or in-service and you're told specifically what to do in this checklist and you're going to follow this chart and you're going to do this and that and the other. Um, and we don't even treat our, our adults or professionals with that same thing, right? Like we, there's, there's, 
it's there's such a disconnect in education right now. So I think it's something that we need to think about, something that I need to think about as I look from the outside inwards towards educators, where, yes, it's easy to sit there and point the finger and say, well, if they would just do this, if they would just write their lesson plan, learning targets on the board, and if they would ensure that there's DOK level four, and they're using this rubric to do this and, and follow this guy's work here, and, and if they would create these these great questions to get the kids going... While all these things are important, they're not the reality of what a teacher has to deal with in the grind on a daily basis. Those ideas work. Those ideas are helpful. Those ideas can make an impact. However, when you start your class and three minutes into setting the stage and the tone of the inquiry and wonder that you want to have, and there's a overhead PA announcement and three kids leave. Seven minutes later, a kid walks in because they were in trouble from a previous thing. Uh, while you turn your back, the one kid who needs your attention, and the only way to get that is to do something loud and obnoxious for you to turn around, whether they're chucking things or they're yelling or they're being mean to somebody else, and you turn around there. And in the meantime, there are eight kids who are doing what you asked that you can't even reach to let them know how much you appreciate them because you're trying to put out all these other fires. And so much of this, I truly, honestly think, goes back to the social-emotional realm, and in particular, confidence. What are we doing to help kids see confidence in themselves? Not to think that they can sit there and conquer every single problem and challenge, because that's not realistic, but the confidence to be able to sit there and go, I can do this. I got this. I may not love it, but I got it. I can do it. And therefore, I don't have to be a, a stinker. So much of what we do is dev devalue ourselves in our personal lives, in our professional lives students in the classroom to avoid the work that we are terrified of doing because we don't believe that we can. It reminds me of this idea that to get more out of life, you must get more out of yourself. And we have to stop blaming the system. And I think about systems, and I think about organizations, and I think about the structures in which teachers and students have to work within, and it's very hard to do. I'm finishing up a read by Douglas Rushkoff right now called Team Human, and it's just there's tons of crazy ideas in this book. Um, but there was a page that, that stuck to me, and then I will kind of bring this back full circle. And while he's talking technology in this particular passage, I think it speaks volumes to what I see happening in many schools um, that I work with. And I'm just going to read you the, the, the parts, and then we're going to break it down. And, and in the book, um, it states... We must not accept any technology as a default solution for our problems. When we do, we end up trying to optimize ourselves for our machines instead of optimizing our machines for us. Whenever people or institutions fail, we assume they are simply lacking the appropriate algorithms or upgrades. By starting with the assumption that our problems are fixable by technology, we end up em emphasizing very particular strategies. We improve the metrics that a given technology can improve, but often ignore or leave behind the sorts of problems that the technology can't address. Holy cow. Now, as opposed to technology, when I, I instantly thought education. 
I thought about frameworks or rubrics or assessment tools or whatever it is that your district and school is using to try to create a professional development plan, trying to put together a plan to be successful. And so I see a lot of schools right now grappling with the idea of how do we optimize ourselves? In this case, in the book, he said machines, but for these rubrics, in Iowa, we have the state report card. We have the AMI, and we have the SAMI, and now we have to adopt instructional frameworks. And while all this work is important, something that I fear, which is not being discussed and being avoided, is the social-emotional being, the confidence, the mindset of the professionals and the students in the classroom that are the ones that have to actually do this work. The people that are not, that can no longer just pass it on to somebody else. They are the last in line, but at the same time, the most important elements for anything to work and change and be successful. Kind of an ironic parallel there. So when I, when I read this, I, I couldn't help but think about that. Um, you know, whenever people or institutions fail, we assume they're simply lagging the appropriate algorithms or upgrades. And while we're not looking for algorithms or upgrades, we look at when students don't work, when students fail, when students aren't learning, it's because we don't have the right curriculum. We don't have the right textbook. We don't have the right whatever it might be. They don't have the right parents or the family dynamics. When we think about casting the blame on teachers, it's because they're not properly educated or whatever it is. As teachers, when we look toward admin, it's because they're not giving us the support they need, the, the resources needed to do the work. And I think if we can connect it to this next sentence that I read, by starting with the assumption that our problems are fixable by technology, we end up emphasizing very particular strategies. This, to me, is key in the education. So if I remix this, by starting with the assumption that our problems are fixable by frameworks, rubrics, book studies, articles, we end up emphasizing very particular strategies. So much of the work happening in schools is on the system. It's on the rubric. It's on strategies and techniques. It's on buying curriculum. It's on the things focused on content and curriculum. These very black and white topics but we're ignoring the sorts of problems that the frameworks can't address. And what nobody is willing to address is the social and emotional needs of the people. We're not addressing the fact that we are human beings that need more than just high-level vocab list, that need another way of writing a lesson plan, another discussion in PLC, what about the kid that's coming to school every day hungry? What about the kid that's coming to school with some sort of anxiety disorder? What are we doing for the educator that's going through a divorce because their spouse is leaving them? What are we doing for the kid or the educator whose parents have cancer? 
we're not addressing the most crucial element that needs to be addressed because it's hard, because it's a gray area. It's not black or white. These things can't be checked off on a checklist. You can't go to a one-day training and think that you've done the work. You can't put it in a rubric because to be human and to help human is not that way. You have to build connection. You have to build relationships. You have to build a system of support to make those things happen. I think about the girls that destroyed their robot. And what do we do? Did we give up on them and just turn, ahead, turn our eyes away and go, oh, what are we going to do? No. I sat down in a chair and I said, well, let's get that thing working. And we nudge and we encourage and, and we got the thing happening. The other group of girls who named the robot Loser crying out for help saying we have no confidence in ourselves these two robots made it to the end another group of girls robot won the whole thing so as i think about stem and i think about the confidence i think about we have to provide these opportunities we have to provide these systems of support we have to nudge them we have to nurture them we have to give them the things needed for them to be able to be vulnerable enough to put their place out there to say i'm going to hit the on button to see what happens i'm making myself vulnerable by sharing what i've created See, social, emotional, and confidence isn't so much about looking in the mirror and telling yourself that you're great, even though that is vital. It's about putting yourself out there among others. It's the thing that nobody loves to do. It's terrifying because you risk the vulnerability of being wrong, of someone telling you negative messages, of your idea not working. That is important. We have to eliminate the silence. Another passage from the book, he says, the things people do become normal when they can't be shamed into silence about doing them. Are we talking to the teachers? Are we talking to the students about the things that are happening in their circles? Are we aware of the events that are occurring? And are we supporting them to no longer be silent? I'll give you a personal story. So I'm building this dragster course. I feel pretty savvy about my coding, my building, my robotic skills. And I'm building this course, and I cannot get this thing to work. I'm trying to create this finish line that when a robot, a dragster robot, races across the finish line, these photoresistors trigger, and it displays their timer on this LCD screen that I was building out. I could not get it to work. I could not figure it out. And I was spending way too much time on it. I was getting frustrated. I was getting angry. So I made myself vulnerable because I do have confidence in my STEM skills and my coding. And I went to a forum and I said, here's what I'm working on and I'm stuck. Can someone please help me? Not even within 10 minutes, I got two negative, nasty responses. Just super mean responses. And I shut down. I shut down because I was like, here I was making myself vulnerable, admitting that I don't know, admitting that I need help into a forum that was designed specifically for the task that I was working on. It like, wasn't like I just threw it out in some random void of the internet. I went right to the place where you go for help, designed for help, and I got blasted. So I quit. I stopped for a couple of days and I completely left it. But then I was able to fuel that fire and spin it in the right way to go for it and actually get it done.
and I felt really good when just the other day I have it working. It works. And I can salute myself. I can pat myself on the back and I feel great about it. But that feeling was terrible. So this idea of social-emotional mindset and confidence, that I come back and I think about my teaching with these kids and these students these last couple weeks, I think about the teachers, and I think about as we move into summer, we have to have a very specific eye at what is it that we need. We don't need more curriculum PD. We don't need more lesson plan structures. We don't need a book study on how to write learning targets on the wall. Yes, those things are important, and they do play a role in the overall piece. But we have to stop ignoring the elephant in the room. And that is the emotional gauge of the people we serve and work with every single day the confidence of the people and the students and the professionals we work with every single day, the social-emotional needs of our people every single day. And what are the systems of support? Where are the connections? Where are the groups to allow safe conversation to happen around these elements? Because if we don't, then we can't get angry when people don't express themselves. We can't get angry when we're not aware of the concerns. We can't get angry that people act out in different methods of emotional outburst because they're trying to mask the things that are hurting them inside. My days in teaching this last week and a half, small dose, but it was more than just a one day come in and rah-rah, everyone likes you for one day. But what about seven days? What about eight days? And I just want to tell every educator, thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for what you put up with every single day. Thank you for trying to make things work in the confines of which you work. Because you don't have much power, say, in the bigger decision-making things. It just gets handed down to you. And I want to tell you that I'm sorry for assuming that I understand. Well, I understand the struggles because I listen to my, my wife, who's in the classroom, share her stories day in and day out. It's way different when you're actually in it and have to deal with it in the good and the bad. And so I challenge anybody who's not in the classroom to get yourself in the classroom. Spend a week, spend two weeks, spend a month teaching, co-teaching, not just sitting in the back observing, checking email, like literally doing the work. Write the lesson plans. Differentiate. Deal with all the variables and factors that a teacher deals with every single day when trying to actually do all the things that they're being asked to do. And then let's talk about it. And let's support one another. I hope everybody, as you wrap up your year and you move into summer, you take care of yourself. You get away from education for a little bit, you do some reading, you do some exercise, you sit out in the sunshine, and you recalibrate what it is that you've got going on. And I just want to say it one more time. Thank you for what you do. Because without you, this world would be crazy. And it's already crazy enough. And we don't need any more crazy. Take care.